Hey everybody, this is Brian Zimmerman, host of Jazz's Backstage Pass. Welcome to another episode uh, and the first episode of 2020. I want to start the year off on a high note and so to that end, I've invited my guest, Benny Banak III. Uh, Benny is an amazingly talented trumpeter and vocalist and uh, he's got a new album coming out later this month called A Lot of Living to Do on which he is uh, playing trumpet and singing and swinging his butt off a alongside some pretty heavy-hitting guests like uh, the bassist Christian McBride, um, the pianist Emmett Cohen, the vocalist Veronica Swift. It's a great album, really nice program, and I highly suggest you go and pick it up when it comes out. Not to mention, Benny is just a really great guy. He's funny. He's got some just hysterical stories about coming up as a jazz musician um, and as the son of two jazz musicians and uh, it's got some good advice too for the aspiring jazz artists out there so this is a good episode for the kiddos as they say anyhow before we get into it i want to take a quick second here to thank some of this episode's sponsors they include cobuzz.com the world's largest catalog of streaming music and studio quality high res you can stream all of your music in the highest possible quality starting at just 9.99 per month visit on.com cobuzz.com slash jazz is to learn more and that's cobuzz spelled q-o-b-u-z.com thanks also to mac avenue records two important albums coming out from from them very soon um, one is from the aforementioned christian mcbride he's got a new album called the movement revisited a musical portrait of four icons that's due out february 7th um, and then a week later on february 14th they'll have a new album by the pianist aaron deal called the Vagabond. We wrote about it on our website. Uh, it's a really great album. On it, uh, Aaron interprets the music of one of my favorite contemporary classical composers, Philip Glass. So a lot of cool jazz meets minimalism stuff on that album, along with a bunch of other great stuff. But uh, yeah, two new albums to look forward to. To learn more, visit macavenue.com. Um, want to also take a second here to thank some of the independent artists who hit us up on our Inside Track submission program. So thank you to vocalist Morris Paul Kennedy. He's got a new album out right now called Love in the Moments. You can read more about it and hear excerpts at musicbymorris.net. Thanks also to the Cone of Confusion Band. They're a fusion group out of Sydney, Australia. They've got a new self-titled album out right now. Uh, You can hear a little bit of it on our website, or you can check them out online at coneofconfusionband.bandcamp.com. All right, let's go ahead and get into today's episode. We're going to kick things off with the title track from Benny Benack's new album, A Lot of Living to Do. Here we go. I'm kissing, and I mean to kiss me a few. Oh, those girls don't know what they're missing. I've got a lot of living to do, and there's wine already for tasting, and there's Cadillacs all shiny and new. Gotta move, cause time is a wasting. There's such a lot of living to do. There's music to play. Benny Benack, the third. Yes, sir. BB3. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's that's a great NBA name. 
you should get a jersey. <laughs> welcome to the Thank welcome you. to the podcast, man. Really happy to have you on. Oh, pleasure, um, man. Pleasure. We are talking on December twenty third, Christmas Eve, Eve. And that's, right. that's important because I've been spinning your holiday album. Oh, uh, yes, yes, just, yes. Uh, <laughs> it's awesome. That's with Stephen. How do you pronounce his last Fifeke. name? Fifeke. 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 We tell the kids um, when we do the school concerts, we say it's like five keys, everyone. And he plays the piano. So that's how you don't forget. And I, I'm sure they just laugh hysterically. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> Uh, no, but it's it's a really nice, it's an EP, um, and it's a really nice little uh, holiday album. What I like about it, um, which you don't get to see too often, Hanukkah songs. Well, that's right. That's right. Well, you know, Stephen is uh, a member of the tribe, as it were, so, sure, you know, sure. I figured it would sweeten the deal if I, you know, got him to make big band arrangements of some of these tunes and charts that I had. You know, I figured I would uh, put one in there, you know for uh for his team and so it was good we uh we tried to do a little holiday album for everyone this year you know exactly as a fellow member of the tribe i certainly appreciate it there you, you go just don't hear any hanukkah songs man so it's got a great sound you've got a you've got a really timeless quality to your voice and and to your playing and just to your whole aesthetic because you're how old i just turned 29 a couple days after thanksgiving actually oh mazel tov mazel tov <laughs> um you. you've got a very mature sound and this band to put together a big band project like this um you know first of, and and sing with the kind of timber and tone that you do and the style that you do is really remarkable man um oh, i'm curious you, as to how you got your start in jazz um and you know how you started kind of leaning toward this uh frank sinatra mel torme-esque crooner vibe right well i think uh for for starters because i come from a musical family you know we mentioned that i'm here in pittsburgh and uh you know i grew up playing gigs with my dad who's a sax player who grew up playing gigs standing next to his dad, my grandfather, who was a, you know, pretty prominent, well-known trumpet player, band leader um, around Pittsburgh um, back in his heyday. And my mother is, you know, teaching voice lessons downstairs in uh, the living room of her house here and is a, a vocalist. And, you know, my parents met on the bandstand and all of that. So certainly I was surrounded by, you know, jazz music basically from inception. So, you know, it's kind of been all that I've ever known. Um, and that was kind of what I was spoon fed as a kid, you know, learning traditional jazz, you know, Dixieland jazz, New Orleans type songs, playing those with my dad, marching around, you know, little restaurants and jumping up on tables and things like that. And driving around in the car to piano <laughs> lessons, you know, listening to Oscar Peterson, Clark Terry record and Louis Prima and Harry Connick Jr. and Nicholas Payton and Roy Hargrove. You know, that was like my my childhood was just uh, the beginning in. of the Young Lion movement, you know, yeah. the mid 90s yeah. and early 2000s. And that was when, you know, Harry was putting out all these great records. So, you know, I, I looking back, my musical identity was kind of formed by this juxtaposition of what was happening at the time in jazz, which was, you know, very much these, uh, you know, young, talented firebrands kind of going back yeah, yeah. And, and playing more of the tradition and having a little bit of a modern aesthetic to go along with it. And then, you know, listening to all these old classic recordings that were 
my dad's CD collection or my grandmother's house and having all the old records that she did. So, you know, that that was uh, kind of how the the blend sort of came together. And then, you know, I think like any artist that that, you know, moves to New York when you're 18 years old and, you know, you go through your studies and, you know, you go out every night to these jam sessions and, you know, you're just awed and inspired and intimidated and all at the same time when you go out to the scene night after night. And, you know, there was a little bit of a identity crisis for me, probably like, you know, in my late teens, early 20s, where, you know, you, you kind of feel pressure to keep up with everyone else. And, and at that yeah, time, yeah. Uh, you know, was kind of the the rise of Ambrose. You know, he had just yep. one monk and was playing at the jazz gallery seemingly every other weekend. And, you know, there was a lot happening with kind of his generation, um, you know, with contemporary music and, and creative music, their original music. And that was yep. kind of a, a big moment. You know, this is probably 2009, 2010, 11, 12, around that time um, when I was still really in the incubator at school. And, you know, there was a little detour where I was, you know, really into that and, and writing music that was, uh, you know, you would certainly say kind of more contemporary and, you mm -hmm. know, playing mm -hmm. sessions with musicians that that was really more in their wheelhouse. And, uh, right. you know, I, I, it was great because I've always been really open minded about, you know, the type of music that I, that I want to play and listen to. And, you know, I think it helped me grow. And ultimately, as I got a little bit older, navigating through my 20s, starting to feel comfortable in my own skin and be who I am as any young person, you know, comes to grips with at that point in their life, um, I kind of circled back to, you know, what has always been my home base. And, you know, if, if there were a lot of years of my of my 20s where I was maybe, you know, a little bit um, hesitant to just come out and say it, you know, oh, I, I just love swinging. I love bebop. I yeah, love, man. you know, the Great American Songbook. You know, this is kind of where I feel most at home. You know, it was probably always the truth in the back of my mind, but there was a part right, of me that right. didn't want to, you know, put myself in any pigeonholes before anyone else did, right. you know? Right. It's a really important point, man, for a lot of young players, and that doesn't get talked about enough, I feel like. Um you know, because like you said, you you and I were similar ages. I'm thir I'm 31. Yeah, um, and we kind of, in jazz terms, came of age at a unique point because yeah, it was the start of the Ambroses, the more contemporary stuff, right? The Tyshawn Sories, the Robert Glaspers, you Jason know, Moran, about. yeah, exactly. Not to say any of that stuff isn't super hip. Oh my gosh, I yeah. Feel like there was this, you know, there was this urge, and I think of a lot of musicians like, oh, do we have to suppress this part of us that just wants to play uh, songbook standards and swing? Right. You know, right. um, but I think you're seeing a lot of artists, you know, yourself um, and your contemporaries. I mean, Cohen, Veronica Swift kind of re-embrace the thing that got them back into it in the first place. Yeah, yeah, um, totally. So and not to say you can't do both because I've heard you on the contemporary stuff and the odd meter stuff and, you know, you kill it both. But uh, yeah, your your recent material uh especially the the holiday EP like we were just discussing right. um, finds you in a good zone and right right when you're supposed to be my questions are this you know you mentioned your musical upbringing I think that's awesome that it goes back three generations yeah. in, in Pittsburgh too which is like a jazz mecca 
Totally, you know? totally. Um, Blakey was from Pittsburgh, right? Oh man, we could we could be on the yeah, phone man. for just an hour if you got me talking. <laughs> I remember, you know, the late, great Lawrence Leathers a couple nights where we would be hanging out, uh, you know, it smoke super late at night after somebody's gig and get into pretty heated arguments about which city could claim more, you know, jazz Hall of Famers, jazz all-stars Ooh, if you want to go tough. sports jerseys. Yeah. And he would go Detroit <laughs> and we would just we would Detroit just trade. There. We would just trade one by one, you know. And then we get to somebody you, like Ray Brown, and it would be like this argument because Ray Brown was born in Pittsburgh, but then later spent ooh, formative time in Detroit. And you know, we we it's like Johnny Damon. You know, he played for the Red Sox and the Yankees and won a World Series right. with both. Like, who claims him? You know, so so he goes into the hall with just the blank. Right, hat, right, know, right. Like, so no, I'm very, yeah, very lucky man, growing up in Pittsburgh. Definitely a great city for for jazz. Absolutely, man. Not so much for baseball. But we, we won't <laughs> oh, go you there. had to go there. go there. You just had to go there. Um, <laughs> the singing, though, is interesting to me. Um, you know, so I'm curious as to two things. Number one, what what in God's name brought you to the trumpet, man? I'm a fellow sufferer. I'm a player, <laughs> so I know it just it just takes. It never gives. Yeah. No, um, it's... But uh, so let's start there. What what brought you to the trumpet? Well, um, actually, I started playing piano. You know, obviously the 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 child of two musicians, my sister and I, we were, you know, shipped off to our weekly piano lessons at a very young age. And, you know, as much as I hated to practice, you know, my scales and, you know, learning Debussy and Beethoven and things like that. Of course, now looking back, you know, being a bit of a hack piano player now, I wish I had had more focus and practice more intensely, you know, back then, of course. Um, but you know, went to the piano lessons and, you know, was singing a bit, you know, with my dad's band or learning little show tunes. You know, I think the first song that I ever performed in public was Gary Indiana from the music man. And I was so nervous. The only way I would do it is if my mom came out on stage and played piano with me. So we did that on stage while like my dad and the whole big band is just kind of sitting in their chairs, you know, kind of in between tunes. And it wasn't until I was about eight years old, I think I was in the second grade, where my parents actually put in my hands one of my grandfather's old horns, and it was a cornet because I was so tiny Mm. that, you know, a trumpet would probably tip me over. So I started on my grandfather's cornet, and it was really my parents that, you know, were trying to find a spark maybe that, that hadn't quite caught fire on the piano. And, you know, right away with the trumpet, you know, I think the first time I put it up to my lips, you know, my dad had showed me the fingerings on how to play, you know, some kind of little Steeler fight song or something like that. And I was able to just kind of, you know, crap it out right away. And uh, the rest was kind of history. You know, it, it wasn't such a chore to get me to practice the trumpet the way it was with piano. So that that began my long and tumultuous love hate relationship with uh, the trumpet as any anyone that plays it will tell you you know there's a lot of pain involved in that relationship but uh, oh, totally. you know you get you get a win every once in a while and it keeps you coming back exactly. you know <laughs> i read a quote from uh, alex honold the rock climber okay yeah you've seen that movie and he said something along the lines of you know with rock climbing it never gets easier 
you you always feel like you suck and that you can't do it. You're just able to do it for longer, <laughs> better and higher. And I was like, that sums up the Trump. Yeah, perfectly. totally. <laughs> just go for longer. Um, did you take formal lessons in singing? I never did, which is always, you know, now cool, it, it, it's so funny. You know, I say that to people after a gig or something when they're talking to me about my voice and they're always like, mm -hmm. you know, they, they can't believe it. And then I tell them that my mother is like, you know, a pretty renowned vocal teacher. And then they can't believe it even more. Like, oh, okay. uh, you know, as I said, like listening to voice lessons happening in the living room right now. Yeah. Um, right. You know, I, I would say that I've had vocal coaching, you know, from my mother, whether it was preparing to audition for the high school musical, you know, to do guys and dolls and, and things like nice. that. But I will say uh, it's something that, you know, the kind of the craft of the voice and, and really like the treating it as an instrument is something that has only come into focus for me really in the last year, the last couple years. Um, cause it was something that I always took for granted. Whereas the trumpet, you know, as you know, we have to be so meticulous and, you know, every, every minute on the horn is, yep. you know, precious and warming up and warming down and having a routine and making sure that you have enough maintenance on a day, yada, yada, all of these things that I have, you know, ob obsessed over, uh, the minutia of the trumpet, the voice was totally the opposite thing where, you know, never done a warm up in my life. You know, never had a gig where I didn't have whiskey in my hand in between songs and, you know, hanging out, yeah, yeah. screaming, yelling all night long, hanging after the gig, not getting any sleep, waking up the next day, do it again. And, you know, as a young person, I could kind of get away with it. And not to say that, you know, being late 20s, early 30s is old because we are not old. We are still we are still in our prime. You know, absolutely. But with with that little bit of advanced age, finally, it started to catch up with me, um, you know, in like the last year or so. Also, as the singing has become, you know, really, really kind of an equal partner in what my musical identity is. Yeah. And I'm singing now more than ever. Uh, and with that, you know, some of these kind of maintenance and care things come into play where, you know, it might not be such a bad idea to have a humidifier in my room and, you know, maybe I shouldn't drink mm -hmm. six whiskeys over the course <laughs> of the gig and, you know, sing right. all night and, you know, things like that. So, uh, I, I still, and my mother reminds me every time she sees me play, I still need voice lessons. I still need, you know, to, to kind of understand that instrument more intimately and, you know, it's ironic because, as I said, I have, you know, gone to such painstaking lengths to really kind of be my own doctor and monitor myself, you know, hyper carefully as a trumpet player. And the voice was always, you know, totally an afterthought. And especially now that, you know, like I said, it's become such a part of my identity musically, I'm, I'm playing catch up and I'm really trying to, to give that the same kind of... TLC that I gave the trumpet all these years. I feel you, man. And what's so curious about the voice is that a good speaking voice, you hear people with these amazing, you know, radio announcer as speaking voices. Totally. And it does not, it doesn't translate over. Right. It, in fact, it very rarely translates over. Or you hear someone, you know, an amazing musician, great pitch, amazing ears, and for some reason they can't, they can't sing. 
I certainly yeah. fall into that camp. You know what? It's hilarious. Um, you mentioned we're talking about the Christmas EP with Stephen Feifke. Yeah. Uh, you know, God bless him, one of my best friends. And we were roommates for a number of years. Uh, he has one of the most incredible ears that I have ever yeah. met in my life. You know, he can like, you can lay both your elbows down on the piano and he can tell you every note, you know, you can, he right. can listen to an orchestra recording chord and tell you every note. You could throw your keys up against the wall and he'll tell you which seven overtones <laughs> it is. But he right, is... Right. Utterly tone deaf when he sings. It's like, and he knows Isn't it too. That's the weirdest thing. He man? knows it yeah. too. That like he cannot, you know, sing a pitch to save his life. But he has like the most incredible ear I've ever heard. So I can't explain that either. And neither it is the strangest thing. So I don't. I think it's it's partially a, a like a confidence thing of just you know because I, I don't know because I've heard some singers. You know, even though the tone isn't that great, every pitch is just locked in. Yeah, like, that works, man. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah, that works. Um, but you've, you, I mean, you sound great. Uh, you got it really. We talked about some of your influences earlier on another phone call. Um, you know, Mel Torme, um, Chet Baker being another one. Certainly. Uh, yeah, Chet, man, he's one of my favorites too. Oh, here's a good Chet question for you. Do you feel that he's underrated as a trumpet player, as an improviser? Yeah, I mean, I, I'll I'll just go ahead and you know broaden that out and say that I think any great musician that also you know made the uh, artistic and or business decision to be a singer, uh, yeah. you, you know, their musicianship is going to be overshadowed a bit. And on top of Chet Baker, I would also, if you want to talk about my heroes, my chief influences, I would say the same thing about right. Harry Connick. Uh, you know, you look at someone okay. that arranges all of the big band charts by himself and plays, yes. you know, New Orleans boogie woogie piano and has monk influences and, you know, James P. Johnson influences and plays his ass off, but, you know, sings a ballad. And that is why, you know, he's on Broadway right, right now. Right. Or, right. you know, and Chet Baker is a perfect example of that. I mean, Chet Baker became the, uh, you know, the James Dean of jazz, you know, right. on the heels of Chet Baker sings. And, you know, he was kind of, you know, dating all these beautiful Hollywood girls because he was a star because he sang. But some of his early recordings, especially, um, you know, I'm thinking of some of the things that he did, uh, you know, Trumpet and Barry, where they're just playing yeah, these man. like burning bop tunes. And Italian he, sessions. Yeah. And he just has like a pile, like of, yeah. pile of language and was getting all around yeah. the horn. You know, he never he never maybe, you know, went into the stratosphere. But from, right. you know, the two octaves, the meat of the instrument, he, he was fluid all the way through it. And totally, you know, his his melodicism, of course, w was always there in spades. And, uh, you know, I, I think certainly it's something that, again, you almost have to judge trumpet players kind of by and in brass in general, kind of by a different yeah. standard, because yes, how fickle degrees. how fickle the instrument is, you know, the mind is still there in, in the musical choices and decisions don't decay the way that the physical side might and. It's interesting. Sometimes I listen to trumpet players. You could say, you know, later Chet Baker or, mm -hmm. you know, later Freddie Hubbard or, Freddie Hubbard, yeah. you know, 
I hope it's not sacrilegious to say, but later Roy Hargrove, you know, seeing when, when I first came to New York, yeah. uh, Roy yeah. was at the peak of his powers, and then as his health declined, you know, it, it's it, again, we talked a little bit about sports, and I am such a sports fanatic, and I know people hate to liken music to sports, but I just have such a fascination with, uh, you know, athletes and the way they take care of their body and their craft, the, you yeah. know, the way I liken that to musicians. And I think of, you know, later stages Roy Hargrove as, you know, a declining, uh, you know, LeBron James figuring out how to still, you know, be in command of the entire game as his physical skills decline. You know, the way that Roy Hargrove may have not been able to play the trumpet above G on top of the staff for the last eight years of his life, but he would still sit in at smalls and play polka dots and moonbeams and everybody in the room would be crying, you know? So that was something with Chet Baker, certainly where maybe he is not mentioned in the same breath of other great trumpet players because he, maybe his chops and facility were not, you know, where they could have been for a very long time for a peak But, uh, you know, with trumpet players, it's almost like you have to look at their peak. You have to look at when they were firing on all cylinders. How did they sound on those recordings? And then you kind of have to extrapolate that out and, you know, judge them off of that. And if you go to some of those recordings, like you mentioned, where Chet was on and his chops were on, he's as fine of a, you know, West Coast bopper as anybody else in his generation. And, you know, then he singing became, you know, his calling card and his personal demons that he battled. As we all know, the trumpet, you know, you really can't take a day off with the trumpet. And if you no. neglect it, you 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 will pay for it. So everybody you know, knows he dealt right. with that the way we all did. But, you know, as we're talking about with some of these other guys, too, I mean, was immensely musical and, you know, could say more with an octave and a half than most of us could ever dream to do with more than that so you know i have a great appreciation for uh for chet certainly yeah and you're right about you know these really virtuosic musicians who go you know who discover they can sing um and go on to make careers out of it harry connick perfect example george benson is another one oh my gosh that guy couldn't couldn't have he didn't need to sing a note and could have had a career, you know, as like a top tier jazz artist. You you see some of the stuff that he does at uh, some live festival stuff from back in the day. Oh, and yeah. he's absolutely just shredding. Well, I, mean, I, I might I, I might say while we're on the subject, George Benson dot 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 Pittsburgh. Okay, so represent. Oh, hey now, represent hey now. That's right. <laughs> that's right. Pittsburgh guy. That's right. Um, it's just a number of the cat. He didn't have to sing a lick. Right. Right. And, and you know, probably wouldn't have been as famous, but. Uh, well, like I said, it, it very well may be an artistic decision at some time, but, uh, you know, yeah. it's also a bit of a business decision at some point, too. So <laughs> you can't you can't fault these guys. No. I mean, but it's you know, it's another weapon to have in your arsenal. Totally. Man. I mean, it's totally. You're a, you are really, truly a multi-tooled player. Um, and, you know, in terms of really putting on a show and connecting with an audience, uh, the voice is such a powerful tool for that. It is. You know, it really is. How nice it must be to put the horn down and be like, I'm going to sing to you. Um, yeah. And, and so, you know, again, we're excited to see it on the EP. Really looking forward to the new album, man. Coming out 2020 is what we're thinking. That's right? January that, 2020. That's okay. right. Yeah, the last Friday there. And then we're doing a, uh, you know, a Dizzy's Monday where they do the WBGO live cast. Yeah, and, man. you know, they're streaming their stuff now on, on their website. Lincoln Center is. So 
that's kind of uh, we're starting off the year with a bang there. And then, you know, hopefully the whole year is just going to be, you know, getting getting old fashioned hard copies of that album in as many hands as we can. So, yeah, man, a lot of living to do is the name of the album. Yes. Um, Featuring Christian McBride. Yes, yes, yes. That was a uh, you know, you talk about, you know, the dreams of an eight year old. Benny Benack the third listening to you know Roy Hargrove albums and Nick Payton albums and you know the the one consistent that seemed to be on everybody's recording from that time was Christian McBride and uh you know I don't you don't have to say much about him we we all know what he brings to the table so that was a certainly a bucket list you know kind of pipe dream for me and I was lucky that um, my mentor actually coming up in Pittsburgh is the great trumpeter Sean Jones, and oh, you know he is was he another Pittsburgh guy. Well, he was living in Pittsburgh at the time that I was in like junior high school because he was teaching at Duquesne, the college there, and he's originally oh, right. from Warren, Ohio, so he's close, okay. you know, close. Okay, um, but yeah, oh, he Pittsburgh. he was a, an early mentor and teacher of mine, uh, and really, you know, the the most formative teacher trumpet and jazz wise that I had in my life you know I owe so much to him including uh when Christian McBride put his big band together Sean was originally in the trumpet section and you know was unavailable to make certain things and he stuck his neck out for me and really uh you know vouched to get me in the band so I was able to meet Christian do some gigs with his big band uh I did a European tour with the band last spring which was, you know, a real thrill for me. And that was my first opportunity to kind of get to know Christian and uh, hang out with him a little bit. And when I approached him and his manager about doing the recording, it was probably uh, almost about this time, like last year. I think I was home maybe for Thanksgiving. And so it was, you know, the end of November, beginning of December. And I had given... Christian McBride's manager, you know, six months of possible days to record the album because I was thinking, you know, I'll I'll get around to it maybe in the spring and, you know, maybe sometime in March or April, go in the studio and then take the time to mix it, blah, blah, blah. And it'll come out by the end of the year. And his manager wrote me back and said, Christian would love to do it. He's available January 4th. Yes or no. You know, and so that was like basically I started looking at available days from about January 3rd and was anticipating recording the album, you know, somewhere in the spring. And I had basically one day that Christian could do it. And it was like five weeks away. So I kind of got that date from Christian and then reverse engineered finding a studio, finding an engineer, getting a band, figuring out the music. You know, he was really uh, the the catalyst for me getting the rest of the album together and uh once i had him on board you know the next month was just kind of a mad scramble to get all the pieces lined up sweet man and you put out um you know there's an epk um a video that people can check out online uh for the new album but before that back in the summer right you released uh gravy waltz yeah that was kind of the first right. single um you know that yeah, we put man. out that's that's on the album but uh you know we had right. a, we had some videos done from the session and we put that one out just because i was sitting on all the music here in the middle of the year and so i started leaking it out and, and that was the first one well it was dope man it's an intimate kind of setting because it's just 
I mean, it's just like you and him in a dialogue at first, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's just, just like, a, yeah, it's man. a duo track. Yeah. Oh, it's beautiful. And it was beautiful. cool. He kind of said, "Oh man, you know, Gravy Waltz. This, that's Ray Brown. Like I've never recorded this one. Like you're the first one to get Christian McBride recording this Ray Brown tune." <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, nice, dude, yeah, yeah. Kudos to you. I'll take it. Um, it's and you know, you know, people will listen to it and they'll hear, you know, stellar trumpet, stellar bass. But I'm curious if you could provide just like another level of like what Christian McBride, besides chops, brings to a tune. You know, stuff that we not be may not be able to hear but can feel. Yeah, I mean, I I would say being able to do that recording session with him was just another like you said, another level of appreciation for his mu- musicality and mu- musicianship. And if you do something like that, you, you will get, understand how someone becomes one of the most recorded bass players in the history of the music and one of the icons of this music. Um, just being that up close with what he brings to the table, you know, apart from his, his vibe and his energy, which are seemingly you know, unfailingly, unflappingly positive and inclusive, um, which really kind of eases everybody's, you know, emotions in the studio, in the booth. But then on top of that, it's just, you know, he looks at something for the first time and you say everything to him once and it's just locked in there for the rest of eternity. And, you know, beyond yeah, start here, take a solo here, end the song here. You don't really have to say anything else because his musical mm. instincts are so, so uh, like honed in that he just knows exactly what is required for that piece of music. And his versatility allows him to execute that flawlessly. And, you know, meaning somebody that is on the top of the downbeat poles for electric bass and for acoustic bass. Like, whatever the vibe of the song is, if you say, this one is kind of an open, spacey, you know, kind of broken swing feel, he will play the perfect bass fills. If you say, this one is a really bluesy, down-home, you know, go ahead and, uh, you know, let her rip, he will do that, you know, better than anyone alive. And if you say, well, this one is, you know, a, a more of a Elvin kind of Coltrane kind of thing, you know, he just goes into that bag perfectly. And that's an inspiration to me because I have always tried to be the type of musician, you know, talking about Sean Jones, who really got this into my head when I was very young. I've tried to be the type of musician who just kind of listens to the music and does what the music asks of him, which is to say, if I'm playing a a New Orleans, you know, trad Dixieland tune, trying to like serve the music and and honor that language. And if I'm playing a contemporary original song in odd meter, uh, you know, trying to, you know, be in that vein and, and, and live in that language. And if I'm playing a bebop, hard bop tune, you know, trying to, to draw from that, that, you know, aesthetic and, you know, you, you still are you like Christian McBride is Christian McBride, regardless of the style or what have you. But, um, you know, he's just so, he just knows exactly what is required of the bass player in every musical scenario. And, you know, you listen back to it and you say, Oh yeah, that's, that's exactly what you want to (laughs) hear on that song. And gravy Walsh is a perfect example of that. You know, it's, the, the the song sounds like the title, you know, and he just yeah. puts puts gravy all yeah. over the place on there and I love it. <laughs>
Yeah, man. It's it's the fluency in all of those tongues. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of dialects under the jazz umbrella. Right. Um, and yeah, I mean, he certainly displays that. I'm curious as, you know, for you, you mentioned kind of drawing inspiration from the song, from the genre and so forth. But you have an advantage as a vocalist, someone who's really plugged into the lyrics, um, you know, of a, a standard or, you know, original with lyrics or anything, anything like that. Does really soaking yourself, getting into those lyrics, does that help you interpret the song beyond, you know, just having to play it on the horn? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And it was always the kind of thing where, you know, growing up, you, you go to a number of master classes in like, you know, high school jazz workshops and, you know, honors bands and things like that. And you hear older musicians and like, what's one of the first things that they ever say when you go to play a ballad? You know, they say, well, do you know the lyric? And then the kid kind of looks down at the floor in shame and you say, no, I don't know the lyric. And they're like, well, what is My Funny Valentine actually about? You know, and that whole thing. And I remember being younger, kind of rolling my eyes at that because, you know, I, I've always known a bunch of tunes, you know, and, and I pride myself on, you know, not needing the I Real book on most gigs. You know what I mean? When it comes to kind of the yeah, great American yeah, yeah. songbook. But I will admit that for the hundreds and hundreds of tunes that I do know, I do not know the lyrics to many of them. And if you hear me singing a song on a gig, chances are my phone is probably out on the music stand with, you know, Google lyrics put up and I, I'm trying, I'm, you know, even the professionals, (laughs) I'm retroactively (laughs) trying to go back and, you know, catalog my lyrics the way I have on the horn. But I, I will say, you know, the younger me that, that was kind of rolling his eyes at that notion as I've gotten older and, you know, singing is, like I said, has become a more important thing of what I do. It, it is just so vitally important uh, and not even for ourselves, you know, inward to, to better understand the song, but for the audience too, you know, because an audience that will pick up on emotion and, you know, the physical cues that a performer is doing and an audience might not be able to recognize, you know, sharp 11 major seven but they can certainly recognize you know longing or uh you know passion and and these kind of emotions that the songs give us kind of keys to and the lyrics are kind of the the guide so you know i i would even say even equally important knowing a lyric because it's going to you know change the way that a horn player phrases the melody it's equally important because, you know, knowing that lyric will help, you know, inform the audience, you know, how they're supposed to feel. And, you know, as I've gotten older, I've also realized how vitally important that is to have that connection with the audience. Absolutely, man. It's, it reminds me of that old joke, I think, about when Sonny gets blue, you know, and the singer's on stage playing with the piano player. Yeah. She's singing, when Sonny gets blue, she just, oh, forgot, what's the next line? The piano player goes, B flat minor seven. <laughs> yeah. I love it just that doesn't, communicate the same, <laughs> doesn't communicate the same feeling. Yeah. And isn't it funny how we go straight to the I real book these days? I know, right? man. I know. I know. And believe me, you, uh, it's, could, but it's, you could turn on, <laughs> you could pull up your Facebook right now and there would be some old jazz musician with a status you know, haranguing some young musician they saw at Smalls with their iReal book without fail. It's like once a week yeah. somebody yells about that. So I know. Well, hey, I got one too. I, you know, I actually have even the before the Hal Leonard Real Book. Yeah. I got a, 
like a black market bootleg actual real book online. Wow. You know, like index card one. Yeah, man. Well, there you go. Spent too much on it. Well, you know, I remember I remember I was uh, the summer before my freshman year at Manhattan School of Music. I, I was involved in the Vail Jazz Workshop. They, they have like kind of a youth all star program. Um, and it's John Clayton and the Clayton Brothers is, is like the faculty of that camp. And they've been doing it for years and years. And I remember when you get into that camp, um, which was looking back was really kind of a, a uh, an amazing group because there was like 13 of us and Grace Kelly was in it with me. Jimmy McBride was in it with me. Ravine Markovitz was in it with me. Uh, you know, Brian Carter, Adam Larson, Emmett, like we all kind of did that program at the same Future time. Stars right there. Um, yeah. And I remember the first night, you know, you're sitting around the campfire up here in the mountains in Vale, and it's this very kumbaya thing. And John Clayton's such a, you know, magnanimous, warm guy. And then, you know, they had told everybody to bring a copy of the real book with them to the to the camp because this was, you know, 2008. We weren't really there was no I real book yet. We all were still had the mm-hmm. had the actual book, and we all yeah. brought a copy of it and we were sitting around the campfire and then John Clayton said okay everyone now I want you all to take your real book and burn it and throw it in the fire (laughs) because there should (laughs) never be any real books on the bandstand and we did it we you know sorry sorry for the environment but we burned all of those books right there real books and that is symbolic you know that's that's the one thing that the old heads will always tell you you got to know the tunes man you can't can't rely on the real book I know you got to get the tunes under your fingers, man. That's it's, right. Uh, it's tough. It's a, it's an ongoing process. Oh, but I feel like, you know, there are certain building blocks, you know, and once you re- you're able to recognize shapes and you say, oh, okay, you know, I, it's this shape that goes into this shape. and Totally. Know, and when you. when you talk yeah. about the songbook standards, you know, it's like, I remember, I forget who said it, but I remember hearing somewhere they were, they were like, you know, there really is only like five or six songs. Which is totally true, you know, once you start to learn the first hundred and then the next hundred and the next hundred, every one of these composers, you know, they have their bag of tricks and it ends up being like, oh, you know, this song is just the A section to just friends, but then the bridge to I can't get started. And then you say, oh, well, this tune is just, you know, the A section of comes love. And then the bridge is like, you know, the bridge to just one of those things or whatever, you know, and all these songs kind of, they, they, the puzzle pieces fit together. And it's one of those things where you just got to keep learning them and then it gets easier as you go, you know? Totally. You just able to reassemble those Lego pieces. Yeah. Like you said, the shapes, you you start to recognize them. Right. (laughs) Cool, man. Um, so a little more about this new album. Got a a lot of living to do, obviously taken from the, uh, Tune from Bye Bye Birdie. That's right. Are you a fan of that? Are you a fan of that film? Oh yeah, of course. You know, I, I think cool. uh, myself and Conrad Birdie. You know, there's uh, definitely uh, you know some <laughs> some tongue and che- tongue and cheek similarities there, and that's a tune that uh, you know has been done a number of times. As I was looking at different versions of it, you know, I actually coincidentally the the original version of the song that I first heard that got me into that song was from a Lee Morgan album called Standards that was something that was like, you know, in the vault that they released later. And it was a great album. I think Ron Carter's playing bass. I want to say maybe Herbie on piano. Um, 
and Lee Morgan played it as an instrumental and I loved his version of it and for years that's just what I thought it was I thought it was this like hard bop tune then finally uh, you know I came around and realized that Sammy Davis Jr. had a great recording of it Mel Torme had a great recording of it you know the the studio cast recording and you know it now realizing that it you know is kind of this seminal vocal number two um, you know then it became a question of as I was working with Ulysses Owens Jr., who played drums and also produced the album, you know, he wanted us to do it in a way that kind of fit, you know, the the album's kind of mission statement and aesthetic, which is certainly music that is familiar and something, you know, that we have all heard before, but hopefully putting a kind of fresh, you know, new coat of paint on it and saying something different with these musical forms that we all know and love. And so then it became a, a, a question of how can we take this, you know, this ostinato on this song, A Lot of Living to Do, that like mm-hmm. every arrangement has used since the song came out, and, and how can we do something different with it and, and kind of say something new? So that's what we tried to do. Very cool, man. And you did. It, the thing about this song is it's so evocative of like a time period and a feeling. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it's like that mid-century American madman era. Um, but you were able to tap into that, number one. But then, like you mentioned, do something totally different on it. Um, so kudos to you for that, man. Yeah, I, 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 was, I appreciate that. I was doing some research on this tune and I hit upon the got a lot of living to do Wikipedia page. Yeah. Um, and they uh, just loaded with insight like this gem here. The song is sprightly. Uh, the song is a sprightly speedy number and the lyrics include a line. There's a moon that's big and bright. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Spot on. That's it. <laughs> spot on. Yeah. That I uh, just like crack musical analysis yeah, from yeah, Wikipedia. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. I love that. You know, there's some of these, some instances too where like, you know, I just talk about the Christmas EP. Uh, you know, we just did a release show at Birdland um, a couple weeks ago at the beginning of the month and Stephen Feifke and I, we needed some extra material because, you know, the EP is kind of these five little three minute arrangements yeah, and we yeah. had a hour and 15 minutes set at Birdland. Uh, so we were doing some extra, you know, mining for more material and we had the great Alita Moses, who sings on the Christmas EP on a duet that I wrote for us, who also is featured on this album. Uh, we did the Where is the That's Love right. duet, um, Donnie Hathaway and Roberta Flack, um, that Alita actually hipped me to when we were singing together at Jazz Lincoln Center Shanghai. Um, but we needed some extra material. And, you know, me and Steven kind of said, oh, well, what about Baby, It's Cold Outside? That'd be a great closer. And everybody loves that song and da, da, da. And, you know, we we decided to do it. But there was a moment, you know, when we were on stage where that song, of course, coming under such, you know, uh, attack with the uh, yeah. the current social climate that we are in, yeah. you know. And there's a couple moments in the lyrics to A Lot of Living to Do when, you know, Conrad Birdie's kind of saying, you know, there are girls just ripe for some kissing and, you know, I've, you know, I'm going to kiss them all and things like that where it's like, you know, if you really wanted to go through these, these old chestnuts with a fine tooth comb, you know, you, you, you might be able to offend somebody, but (laughs) you, like you said, I think, I think, and I believe there was some, there was some piece that came out, you know, that's kind of like the definitive piece on 
the baby it's cold ice outside debate right. that, that kind of went through the lyric line by line and they had determined some kind of you know well in actuality you know the women of that time you, you know they they actually had to behave in in this manner because you know it was uncouth of them to make yeah. such a suggestion whatever but that if you the subtext of that song was actually not nearly as predatory as the literal reading might seem you know and right. and so right. like you said with with some of these songs and, and these times you know we look back at that era through rose-colored glasses but you just you kind of have to frame things um you know in that time period and you know i totally. I, I think that's kind of that a lot of living to do is an example of that too you know absolutely and you know examine them appreciate them as you know historical artifacts that we were still kind of dealing with right and you know you can be authentic you can be true to them and let people just experience them on their own terms right and, you know i think that's the point of of art you know um so absolutely yeah <laughs> that took us on a tangent um, <laughs> yeah but uh, no, a lot of heavy hitters on this album also, because I know Veronica Swift is another guest. Yeah, absolutely. She is a powerhouse, man. She um, taking I, taking I, the world I, by storm. Absolutely, man. I got to hang with her in Aspen when she was out with um, another artist on this. This is Emmett Cohen. Yeah. Um, they were doing the Frost uh, uh, Jazz Aspen camp out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And... Yeah, their master class was, you know, incredible. They, just the two of them, you know, singing and playing. Yeah. They didn't even have to say a word of instruction. I, I'm pretty sure those students just, like, soaked everything up through osmosis. Oh, yeah. But, uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, man, I, I feel like I would put her in that cohort of players like you who, like we mentioned earlier, are kind of... Getting back in touch with the, the standards, man, and, right. and swinging, right? Um, and not being afraid to really embrace this stuff and be melodic. Um, you know, it feels almost like a rebellious move. How strange is that? Like, that's <laughs> the point we're at now, like, oh, these guys are swinging again, and that's like an act of rebellion. But right, I don't know. I I, I appreciate what you're doing, and I and I see big things for this kind of cohort. Oh man, well, it, it you know it it's really humbling to hear it and flattering in that light. And I would agree with you. You know, I think Veronica being, you know, a handful of years younger than Emmett and myself, but yeah. you know, I, I knew Veronica when I was in high school because we were both a part of the Telluride jazz all-star program. And Emmett knew mm -hmm, Veronica okay. when they were both studying at the university of Miami. Um, you know, and right. she, again, a child of two jazz musicians, you know, her mother's a great singer, her father, Hot O'Brien, a, a bebop yeah. pianist. So, yeah. you know, everything that Veronica does is rooted in, you know, that language and in that vernacular. Um, and it just flows out of her so effortlessly. And, you know, I don't know that when you talk about like our cohorts, like kind of the the, the crew of, of folks that all kind of arrived to New York around the same time and, and we all kind of came of age together, I don't know that anybody consciously, you know, we felt like in the moment we were, you know, freedom fighters or we were, you know, acting out our rebellion. But <laughs> right. I think, I think like I said, I, I've seen it in a lot of my friends where, you know, from 18 to 28, 
kind of how your musical identity and also who you are as a person kind of takes shape. And I think we all just kind of stayed true to who we were. And it takes some time when you're in this, uh, you know, this, this very small jazz community that we all inhabit. It takes time to kind of find your footing and, Get one foot in the ground and and be confident and comfortable enough to put your other foot next to it and and kind of uh, announce who you are. And I look at people like myself and and Emmett Cohen and Veronica Mm -hmm. and, you know, we have kind of gone into one direction. And then I look at other people that I met at the same time in my life, like Braxton Cook and, mm-hmm. you know, somebody that yeah, posts videos on his Instagram of Cannonball and Kenny Garrett transcriptions every day yeah. and probably has done yeah. hundreds of transcriptions, but then goes out and plays jazz festivals and is singing R&B and, you yeah, know, man. playing, you know, more kind of, uh, you know, Stanley Turrentine, Gerald Albright licks yes, than necessarily yes. Cannonball and Kenny Garrett, but somebody that has the whole breadth of the music, you know, under his fingers and yeah. somebody like Grace That's Kelly, who was a young yeah. Phil Woods prodigy, who now is going in different directions with her music. And, you know, even some of my other friends that I went to Manhattan school with, like uh, the Lucky Chops Brass Band or uh, the electronic music group Brass Tracks, you know, for two examples. Yeah. These are guys that, uh, you know, Ivan Rosenberg, uh, Josh Holcomb, Josh Gowell. These are all names of folks that I was studying with in New York, but, you know, grew up in all the same honors jazz programs and yet have taken a step in the direction of where their musical identity led them. And it kind of happened organically for all of us. So it wasn't something where, you know, me and Emmett got together and, you know, were kind of conspired, you know, saying, hey, this is, you know, this is what we're going to do. But it just kind of naturally happened. And it's nice to see all of these friends and and peers kind of now identifying where their path is and, and taking steps to walk down it, you know. Totally. Yeah, maybe that's where that, you know, we're at a place where people are comfortable being true to their musical identity. Yeah. You know, because you can hear when someone's going against the grain. Right. Um, right. You know, so we're at a point now, jazz has expanded so much that there are pockets for everybody. Yeah, right? absolutely. Um, which is really cool. Um, we mentioned some of the musicians on the disc. You've got a co sign from. Isaac Mizrahi. Did I get that <laughs> That's right. What's, That's so right. he wrote the he wrote the liners. He did. He did. <laughs> okay, you got to explain that. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny because this was actually the first foray into liner notes that that Isaac has done. But um, and we're talking fashion designer. That's Isaac right. Mizrahi. That's right. And That's he right. is That's one of the yeah. one of the great renaissance men of our time. And I will flesh that out. I um, have been playing in Isaac's band for about the last, I want to say, four years. Um, And he has been kind of a part of the underground kind of, you know, slam cabaret scene in New York for pretty much all of the 2000s. I mean, his band, uh, musical director, pianist Ben Waltzer, and Neil Miner on the bass, Joe Strasser on the drums, you know, they have been playing with him at Joe's Pub since the early 2000s. But because 
you know, he has made dresses for Barbara Streisand and Liza Minnelli and Hillary Clinton and Michelle Obama and been a guest host on Project Runway and had his own daytime talk show and hawks all of his, you know, fashion at Target and on QVC. You know, people know him for for that. But, you know, he was actually in the in the film fame that, that, you know, the the famous movie about, you know, the young students at LaGuardia High School. He's in that film as a student and he was a vocal major at that time. So he has always been. Um, a musician uh, and a singer. And actually, the timing of the liner notes, I was made aware um, how brilliant of a writer Isaac is because he just put out his memoir last year, um, which is brilliantly written and just an incredibly, you know, insightful story of, you know, a very orthodox Jewish person coming up in New York and, you know, obviously his coming out story and and his story Uh of, uh, you know, being comfortable in his own skin and his meteoric rise to success. And, you know, the very end of the book is framed as, uh, you know, he's backstage at the Cafe Carlisle getting ready to walk out to to do, uh, you know, his yearly run that we do there at the Carlisle of his cabaret Uh show. And, uh, you know, he really people don't give him enough credit because he's known for all of the other things that he's done. But, you know, we've toured around the country a bit, you know, on a book tour with his memoir. He traveled with the band and we do this. uh, It'll be the the actually the day after my album release at Dizzy's, I start playing at the Cafe Carlisle with Isaac and we do three weeks Um, and people will buy tickets to his shows and just be like, oh, I thought he was going to just tell jokes or tell stories. I didn't even know he was a singer. But he is really a, a, a wonderful singer, and not only that, but he has great musical instincts, and he puts all the music together himself, he curates the set, he comes up with the order, and you know he mines for these kind of old blossom deary b sides that you 've never heard yes. that are like really hip, you know, or he finds these kind of older composers like Cy Coleman and kind of these like you know had they been written 20 years earlier would have been like in a Cole Porter musical, but you know, like songs like that. And then he mixes that with, you know, his own kind of blend of, you know, pop music from his coming of age, whether it's like a Blondie tune and then the band kind of, you know, puts a jazzy spin on that. And it ends up just being a really fun show. And, uh, you know, he's a very magnanimous star and that me being the horn player, you know, he certainly builds in a lot of opportunity for me to solo and kind of have my time to shine. So he, he has become a, a really, uh, you know, big supporter and friend of mine. And especially after reading through his memoir, I thought to myself, you know, he, he's such a, a thoughtful, insightful person and writer, um, I think he would be great at this. And when I approached him about it, you know, I remember I was like, I'd like you to do the liner notes. And he said, oh, darling, I'm, I, I'm so happy to. What are liner notes? <laughs> you know? And then right. I kind of... she's going to go on to like win the Grammy for... Yeah, right. And I had to be like, yeah. well, you know that thing like on all those records you have where like there's the writing on the inside and they just kind of talk about the songs and talk about the person. He said, okay, uh, let me try, you know? And uh, yeah. it ended up ended up being a really, you know, a, a really kind of genuine, um, beautiful kind of take on the record and, you know, a little bit about our relationship together. So I, I was really grateful that he that he did that, obviously, because, you know, his name just kind of awakens uh, an audience far outside of, you know, the people that 
you know, would be buying a, you know, a straight ahead record at, you know, Barnes right. and Nobles yeah. or Borders or something, if yeah. those places still existed. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. We're going to look back on Borders and be like, remember when? Oh, man. That's where I bought my first yeah. jazz CDs, man. Yeah, man. Borders. So there's a soft spot in your heart for Borders. Of course. Of course. Yeah. I mean, Barnes and Nobles, too. I like Barnes and Nobles, too. But that's but, right. Shout out to Bar- Barnes but, and Nobles. You know, Borders. You don't want to see it go the way of Blockbuster. Borders was there first. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> Although there, I love a good like independent VHS store. There used to be one in Chicago, or I lived in Chicago. Yeah, I feel I like, like at this point now, this there's thing- like there's kind of like news articles written about the ones that are still there. You know? Yeah, exactly. There's I think a f- there's still a few. There's a few outposts. Some might be you know? kind of sketchy. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> gotta love that. Well, that's so cool about Isaac Mizrahi, man. And I'm looking forward to reading those as well. Remind us all again of when the album comes out. So uh, the record, a lot of living to do. It is out. I want to say um, Friday before the gig at Dizzy's. So I think that's about January 24th or so. And then uh, the the official release show is uh, at Lincoln Center um, on the 27th, the last Monday in January. And uh, it'll be on WBGO and, and Lincoln Center will be yeah, streaming man. it. So that'll be a, a, a fun weekend. Right on. And for all things BB3, where can people check um, out? Pretty much at BB Jazz. I, 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 that's, uh, you know, that's, okay. that's the Instagram, that's the Twitter, you know, it, it, it all kind of circles back to that. And, uh, you know, all the, all the dates on my calendar for touring and gigs like that are on my website, which is just bennybanackjazz.com. But everything else, you know, YouTube channel, all of that, it's BB Jazz, I, I, I. Right on, man. Well, we'll end with this. Benny, I'm a Dolphins fan. Okay. Okay. We gave you Minka Fitzpatrick. Oh yeah, you're welcome. Ah, well, you know we we're, ha- we're we're doing our darndest to uh, to make sure that first round pick is nice and high for you. I, I that's thought- what I, I was no, I was going to tell you. You have to make them lose. Yeah, man. Well, they're Keep they're, losing. they're they've Please. nearly done it themselves. The last two weeks, they've given me a heart attack. They just lost to the freaking Jets yesterday. So, uh, oh god, I'm still yeah, feeling pretty down about that. But uh, maybe we can lose one more for you and make that uh, draft pick nice and high for you. Please do. I'm hoping there are some strings you could pull. Yeah. Um, something. We need to win. We need to win. The Titans need to lose. I've looked over all the scenarios. That's it. Okay. So that's what I'm hoping well, let for. Let me tell you. There you go. It feels good to root for a team that wants to win. You know, this was tank. Uh, this this was the year of the tank for the Dolphins, and it felt so odd to be like rooting against your team. You you know, you like refer to the other team as we. Like, oh, <laughs> we really got to beat these. <laughs> yeah, but it's rebuilding phase. What well, can I say? You got it, man. Hey, well, you mentioned we'll take it back to the beginning. You were dogging on me for the Pittsburgh Pirates, so we know a thing I or was. two about tanking, and here in Pittsburgh this too. You know, a lot of this lost seasons. Trust me. <laughs> Hang in there, man. You know, we'll get your what, what was your World Series year? Seventy something. Uh, yeah. I mean, we the last the time the Pirates are, won, they had a yeah. couple in in the seventies. I think seventy nine was the last one. Um, and then you know we had our our time in the sun in the early nineties when Barry Bonds yes, was a did. pirate. When Barry Bonds, and yes, they lost yes, to the yes. Braves in back to back NLCSs. So that was it. And then you know with with McCutcheon, the Pirates, we had a couple wild card seasons, but like. We would win 109 games and finish a game behind the Cardinals and then have to play the wild card and go up against Madison Bumgarner in 2010 or, you know, 
Ardsma in 2011. So like we just ran into the greatest pitcher of all time of that season. Right. Every time right. we had to play the freaking wild card and I never really got to see a good playoff run. So still uh, still holding out hope for that one. Maybe one day before the Marlins, for sure. <laughs> Maybe this is going to be. We'll see what Jeter. We'll see what rebuild. Jeter can do. I have faith. I have faith in Jeets, but yeah. it's going to take a while. Yeah, man. Well, anyway, man, this was great. Thank you so much uh, for chatting with me today. I'm really looking forward to you know the release of the new album and just following everything you do, man. I've, I'm really you know you're such a young dude, but you're so talented and. You're going places, man. So, well, I, I really appreciate to... it, man, and, and thank you for taking some time to uh, to let me ramble here. And uh, I know you're you're a busy guy too. You're you're not in one place for long either. So I'm sure I'll see you in New York pretty soon, and, and uh, hopefully we get to hang out again. That's life, man. That would be awesome. Okay, Benny Benack, BB3. Am Sounds I the only good. one that calls you BB3? Oh no, no, no. That's that's As everyone. Today, okay. You know, since my uh, high school <laughs> baseball team is is gone there with that, go. so. We'll roll with that. Right on. 